This morning, or pardon me, the, this summer, I mean to say, Gateway in both congregations has been doing a study of the book of Psalms. And most Sundays in Rafkar and here at Panet, we've been taking a particular psalm and zeroing in on that psalm and seeing what it's all about and how it applies to our walk with God today. Now, this morning will be a little bit of a change of pace. We're still going to be in the book of Psalms, but rather than take just one, we want to step back a little bit and do an overview of the entire book of Psalms and have a look at it, like how it's structured, what it's all about, and perhaps most importantly, well, how Psalms fits into the whole Bible, but also what is the purpose of the book of Psalms. That's what we want to look at today. So if we can have our pretty pictures on the screen. One thing we want to look at is the place of the Psalms. The place of the Psalms. Why is it important? Why does it have such a, a, a central focus? Part of the reason we believe this is that Christ himself assigns the book of Psalms a very, very prominent place. And you'll recall uh, in his walk on the Emmaus Road with the two discouraged disciples. You remember that story, the risen Jesus. And he meets with these two bewildered, confused people that can't get their heads around what has just happened in Jerusalem. And here's what we read. It's in Luke 24, just one verse, verse 44. Luke 24, 44. He tells them, everything written about me in the law the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. We see from that statement that Jesus himself saw the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, as having three main components, the law, the prophets, and the psalms. They each have their own distinct function within the canon, within the, the Old Testament. The place of the law, the role of the law, is to instruct us. Most of you will know the Old Testament word for law is Torah, and Torah simply meant instruction. So the place of the law, the law of Moses, is to instruct God's people. The place of the prophets is somewhat different. Their role, the, the role of the prophetic books, we're thinking, is to admonish. The prophets themselves called Israel to turn back to God because Israel had a, hear, a bit of a habit of wandering off and getting off track. The ministry of the prophets was to call them back. So if the, the role of the law is instruction, we could say the role of the prophets is admonition. Israel, come back. The role of the Psalms, the third major component of the Old Testament, is different from either of those. The role of the, the Psalms is to be fuel, fuel for worship. And that's what we want to look at this morning. The Psalms, in fact, honor the law. If you go to Psalm either 19 or 119, 119 is that big long one, 170 some verses, both of those Psalms, 19 and 119, are dedicated 
to the wonder and the gift, the good gift of God's word to Israel in the law. They're grateful for the law. They love the law. The rabbis who in the centuries before the coming of Jesus put the Old Testament together, when they got to the book of Psalms, they did something very intriguing and it was very deliberate. They organized the Psalms in the book of Psalms into five distinct sections. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The, the five sections of the book begin with Psalms 1, 42, 73, 90, 90, 90 and 107. Once more, 1, 42, 73, 90, and 107. Now, why did the rabbis in that community shortly before the time of Jesus, when they got this book ready to be part of the Hebrew canon, why five sections? Some of you already know the answer to this. It was very deliberate. It was to show that this part of the Bible was meant to sit alongside the five books of Moses. We're not supposed to say, well, Moses is at the top, but the Psalms, they're kind of a few levels down on the shelves. Mm -mm. Psalms sits at the same level in terms of authority as the prophets and the law of Moses. I had something I was going to say, and when it slipped out of my brain, Lord, if it's supposed to be here, give it me back. It'll come. God, Lord, Lord willing. The five books of Moses that sits on the... Oh, I know what it was. The, the sternest rebukes that Jesus ever gave were not to the Pharisees. It was to another group, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had some major theological error. They didn't believe in the great resurrection at the end of the, of the age. They rejected that. And they didn't believe in the divine authority of the prophets or the Psalms. They just said, law of Moses, that's it. And some of Jesus' strongest rebukes, if you read Mark chapter 12, he takes on the Sadducees, and it's a withering rebuke that he gives them. And one of the reasons behind it is that they tried to take other parts of the scriptures and bring them down below the law of Moses. Jesus says, no, it's law, prophets, and psalms all on the same level. I got it back. Thank you, Lord. The place of the psalms. We see that, the, the, that psalms have a place in the New Testament. The first act of worship chronologically in the New Testament is the Virgin Mary, when she's just got the word from the angel Gabriel, she's going to be a mother in a very supernatural way. And the result of this pregnancy, this supernatural conception, will be the Messiah. And what does she do? She spontaneously bursts out with a psalm. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It goes on from there. It's powerful stuff. She's singing a psalm. And this is long before the events of the New Testament really get up and running because Jesus hasn't even been born yet already. Psalms are part of the picture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and following is the great Christ hymn. He was in the form of God, 
but did not take advantage of God, did not take advantage of his equality with God, but he emptied himself. And if you read it in most English Bibles, it very rightly, it's set there in versified form like a poem or the lyrics of a song or like a psalm. Paul is using a psalm to reveal to us who Jesus is. Now, not, not only are there psalms in the text of the New Testament, there is instruction in the New Testament to use psalms in our worship with God and in our communal life. Ephesians 5.19, Ephesians 5.19, here's how we can build one another up, says Paul, by speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.19. Psalms should be part of our corporate life. Finally, Revelation chapter 5, the book of Revelation has actually got quite a number of psalms. One good example, chapter 5, verse 9, the angels, the glorified saints that are already in heaven, the living creatures, what did they do? They, they gather around God's throne, and in the center of that throne is this lamb standing there triumphantly. He's been slain, but now he's standing, and they sing a psalm to the lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. The word there really should be translated slaughtered. It's a very violent word. You were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed men for, for God from every tribe and nation and so forth. They're singing a psalm to the risen lamb. The place of the psalms. We could say more. Alongside the place of the psalms, we need to appreciate the art of the Psalms. Psalm 45, verse 1. 45, 1. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You know, there is such a thing, pardon me, there is a place for spontaneous things that we don't practice and, and fine-tune and polish. Not everything has to be practiced. But there's also a place for using skill something that you learn and even practice and, and do polish and fine-tune it. And I would argue that's what Psalm 45 is talking about. My tongue is the pen of a skillful, that word skillful, a skillful writer. There is art in this book. Let's see some examples. There are vivid images. The fellow on the left, his favorite scripture is Psalm 69, verse 1. The waters have risen up to my neck. <laughs> Some of you this week maybe say, I can relate to that guy and I can relate to that psalm. That's a vivid image. If you ever come near to drowning or something like that or been frightened in a water experience, it can be terrifying. The waters have risen up to my neck. A very different image, but just as vivid is Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The, the word there just means grass. He makes me lie down in the green grass. The sheep is so confident in the shepherd, it's not worried about wolves or predators because the sheep trusts the shepherd. And this is the image that psalm gives us. We all know what green grass is about. Vivid images, that's the point we're making. Part of the art of the psalm is vivid images. 
the art of the Psalms, the way they are structured. A good example is Psalm 19, verse 1. It's one example out of many hundreds of what they call parallelism. We've got it, good. Notice how line 3 is parallel with line 1. Line 3 is parallel with line 1, and the image of the sky, of course, is parallel with the heavens. And the, the idea of proclaiming is parallel with line 1 about declaring. Do you see how it works? They're parallel. In Hebrew poetry, they didn't have rhyming sounds like much English poetry does. The rhymes were not in sound. The rhymes were in ideas. Rhyming ideas, parallelisms. Look again. Line two is parallel with line four. Because one of the ways the glory of God is shown is through his handiwork. Next time you're in the psalm, see how these things work and how different lines line up and echo and reverberate back and forth between them. It's called parallelism. It's part of the art of the psalms. The art of the psalms. They are both personal and cosmic. A very dramatic way the whole book shows us this is in its structure. We've already noticed, like there's the five sections to echo the books of Moses. The first and last psalms, the way they are set in place, and when you read number one and number 150, you step back and you go, oh, here's how that works. Psalm 1 is about an individual believer meditating on God's word. It's quiet, it's meditative, it's individual, and it's personal. Great, and that's part of the value of the Psalms. But at the other end of the book, you've got something very, very different. You've got Psalm 150, praise God in his mighty heavens. I love that image. I've always been wondering what... what what does it mean when it says mighty heavens? Is it talking about just the sheer scope and scale and size of the heavens? Is it including the spiritual heavens where the angels and the glorified saints live? It's a, an interesting question. I'm not sure I've settled on. But it's something vast. It's something huge beyond human imagination. That psalm speaks of loud, clashing symbols. So at the beginning of the book, you've got quiet meditation on the Bible at the end of Psalms, you've got loud clashing symbols. You see the contrast, and it's got to be a both and. At the beginning, one person individually. At the end, and I love this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You can't get any bigger than that. That isn't just the human race. It's everything that's got breath in it. Velma's brother is a botanist, and he explained to me once, you know, plants breathe. A lot of people don't realize that, but plants breathe. So this psalm is telling the grass in your front yard to praise God. If it breathes, it's supposed to be praising God. Do you see it here? Something small, individual, particular, personal, quiet, and then something literally cosmic. It takes in hundreds of billions of light years of space and the stars and every living thing on the planet and all that. The art of the Psalms, small and that hugely vast. The art of the Psalms. One more. Oh, i got two more art. Man. 
variety. The book of Psalms is like the coat Jacob gave Joseph. What was distinctive about that cloak? It was a cloak of many colors. Okay, cloak of many colors. Here's a few examples. There is high praise. High praise. Psalm 150. Someone calls that, we just looked at it, someone has called Psalm 150 like Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. Remember that? Okay. Psalm 150 is like the, the Hallelujah Chorus on steroids. That's what you get is Psalm 150. Psalm 105 is quite different. It's a history lesson. Read that one this afternoon if you have time. It's a history lesson. It's a recital of the mighty acts of God on behalf of Israel. Particular emphasis on the exodus from Egypt. Psalm 23, which of course we've already mentioned, is a, a psalm of contentment, praising God because he's so faithful to look after his sheep. God is so good, I can just lie down and rest in the green grass. And then Psalm 22, what we're highlighting now, is the variety in the book. It's a coat of many colors. Psalm 22 is what we call a lament. This, the author of that psalm is struggling mightily, and its opening line, you all know this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, of course, quotes that verse when he's on the cross. We're going to come back to that. The point I'm wanting us to see at this stage is simply variety, coat of many colors, all different kinds of emotions and sentiments. Finally, as far as the art of the book is concerned, it's meant to be musical. It's musical. The Greek word, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's where the name Psalms came in. Our English word Psalms is actually from the Greek, and it simply means songs. When it says in your Bible Psalms, it actually, it simply means Songs. We'll come back to the Hebrew title in a moment because that's a little bit different. Notice as well the frequent notation you get at the beginning of many of the Psalms. I think it's about a third of them uh, at the heading. They say something like, to the choir master or to the director of music, depending on how you translate it. These are music. They're meant to be sung. In some of them, here's an example, Psalms... 56 verse 1 56 1 it has this notation according to the dove on far off terebinths the terebinth is a form of an oak tree that grows in the Middle East and there was apparently a melody in those days called the dove on the far off terebinths and everybody knew that melody and the way this psalm, number 56, in the Hebrew, the syllables and the rhythm and the accents in the words, it would, you could sing this psalm to that tune, to that melody. Do you see how it works? And every, so everybody knew, oh yeah, I know that tune. We'll sing this psalm to that tune. The point simply being, they're meant to be sung. It's music. Songs that we sing to God. Now, all of that we've said so far was the introduction. Does that bless you? <laughs> what we really want to talk about is the purpose of these wonderful songs that God gave us. And the, the purpose of these songs is fuel. 
Have we got the fuel on the picture? Excellent. Fuel for worship. The purpose of the Psalms is closely related to the purpose of Israel as a people. And I would argue that the purpose of Israel as a people is to worship, is to worship God. They are set apart to be a priestly people, a royal priesthood, and to worship their God. Two excellent examples. The first thing Israel does when God brings them out of Egypt is they sing. I will sing to the Lord. Exodus 15, 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Whoa, it's good stuff. I love that. So here they are on the banks of the sea. They've ju- the, the waves have just finished crashing in on Pharaoh and his soldiers. And these escaped, rescued refugees... God's rescuing them because he made promises to their forefather Abraham some four centuries earlier. He's coming good on his promises. He's bringing them out. And what's the first thing they do? They worship. They sing a psalm. Exodus 15, the horse and rider psalm. Now, fast forward some four or five centuries. Someone named Solomon is now king in the land. And his father, David, had wanted to build a permanent place of worship to replace the tabernacle, but God stepped in and said, No, David, I want your son to do that. So a generation later than some expected, they finally complete this wonderful temple. And in Second Chronicles 6, that's what the picture is an artist's impression of. Second Chronicles 6, this is the, this majestic, must have been, intoxicating in its intensity and passion. This is the dedication ceremony when they start using the temple. And the, f- the fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering supernaturally right off the altar. There's a line in what happens there, Second Chronicles 6, verse 41, and I think it's meant to connect with that particular picture. And now arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place you and the ark of your might, namely the ark of the covenant where the manifest presence of God was. Do you see what's happened? They're seeing God himself as being on the move. He was the pillar of cloud and fire that led them through the Red Sea. That's the image on the left. And now he's still been on the move and finally after centuries of journeying in a sense, There's a permanent place where God's going to live. It's in that house in that city called Zion or or Jerusalem. Now arise and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now, the thing we want to notice is simply this. The people on the left and the people on the right are, of course, the same people. It's the nation of Israel. But in the scene on the left and the scene on the right, they're doing the same thing. They're doing what Israel, but they're doing what God has raised up Israel to do, namely worship. And in both instances, if you read Exodus 15, if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, they sing, they worship God by singing psalms. The purpose of the psalms. The purpose of the psalms is to bring multiple perspectives and emotions. We've already touched on this excellent. 
There's high praise. Hallelujah, chorus on steroids. There's history lessons. They used the history lessons to remind themselves of what God had done. Psalm 105, again, is a good example. You could write a psalm yourself, even if you don't think you're very poetic. Try and do it sometime when nobody's looking so you don't have to feel embarrassed about what a geeky psalm it is about how God has worked in your life. I guarantee you'd find it very edifying. Mine would begin something like, you crossed my path with people that knew you when I didn't. April the 9th, 1967, when most of you weren't even born. April the 9th, 1967, you brought me through the gate. And I got saved. I was 17 years old. I could write a psalm out of that. That's what Psalm 105 is. It's a history lesson. Every time they would sing it, it would glorify God and it would build their faith. A psalm of confidence in God's care, the green grass. And notably, once again, a psalm of lament. God wants us to bring our grief to him. Pour out your hearts before him, the Psalms say. I think that's 62. Whatever is in your heart, pour it out in front of the Lord. He can deal with it. Turn it into a way, a part of glorifying him. And do note in Psalm 22, it begins with the psalmist saying, why have you forsaken me? But if you read the last five verses, it's back on steroids again because the psalm ends in hope and in faith and in passion for God and his glory. The purpose of the psalms. This is a picture of a little teeny edition of the Hebrew text of the book of Psalms. It's just the book of Psalms. Of course, it's very small. It fits in, this, in a person's hand. The word you see written on the front is tehillim, which is the Hebrew word for praises. The, in the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, the title for the book was psalmoi, which means songs, but in Hebrew, it was a different meaning of the title. It was tehillim, which does not mean songs. It means praises. Praises. Now, when these rabbis put this together, they knew that inside this volume called the Psalms or the praises, they knew that inside this, there was a hundred were 500 different emotions and feelings, and there was lots of anguish. How many psalms are there that say, How long, O Lord? Psalm 22 isn't the only one that asks God why. For some of us in Gateway this summer, this has been a why summer, W-H-Y. Lord, why did we lose Tony? There's no glib answers on some of these things. Why did Velma's and my son have a stroke last spring? Still hasn't got his speech back. So, you know, the why issue, it's part of our experience and it's part of the book of Psalms. Some of the psalmists say some pretty intense things back to God. Psalm 44, you know what it says? Psalm 44, verse 23. Are you asleep? <laughs> Awake, O oh Lord, why do you sleep? That's what it says. Interesting thing to ask God because the Psalm 121 is crystal clear. He that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. But another psalm says, why do you sleep? Do you see? I'm saying that God makes room for our emotions. Now, not only do, and, and, and our vexation, our frustration, our bewilderment with God. 
The editors who, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, put this book together, included all those kinds of dynamics of anguish and bewilderment in the book. Then they bundled it together, and here's the clincher. Try and get your head around this. They bundled it together and wrote one word on the front. Praises. Go figure. This, this is something only makes sense with the help of the Holy Spirit. People saying, are you asleep? <laughs> and we call it, they called it praises. It says something about God. He says, bring your stuff to me. However confused or muddled or bewildered or angry it is, bring it. Bring it. You come on in. Come on and bring it in. Our struggles can be part of the fuel. The Levites, my next picture. In ancient Israel, the Levites were responsible for maintaining the tabernacle and then later the temple. Leviticus 1 verse 7. Leviticus 1 verse 7. And the sons of Aaron the priests shall arrange wood on the fire. That was part of their ministry. So they would be getting ready to, like first they would butcher the animal and they would would slay it, then they would butcher it and have it all cut up and ready. But before they could offer it to God, they had to have an altar and put wood on the altar and light it on fire. So it would be a burnt offering to the Lord. And part of the Levites' responsibility was to arrange the wood. And, you know, even after they had started the the fire, to put more fresh wood in to keep the fire burning. It says in Leviticus 10, the fire on the altar must never go out. I like that verse. John Wesley used that as a trademark for his whole ministry, the beginnings of Methodism and the rediscovery of passion in our walk with God. And that was his, that was his trademark verse. The fire on the altar must never go out. The Levites understood that. Now, their fuel was wood. Our fuel, because we now have the book of Psalms, is words. Hosea 14, verse 2. Hosea 14, verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Hosea's got lots in it about judgment about Israel wandering away, of him calling them back. And the prophet Hosea says, and when you go to God, take something with you. Take words and worship him. What what do we take? What kind of words do we take with us? I'm coming into a close here. Take with you words. Well, what kind of words? Well, Psalms are a good place to start. Take with you, I'm sure Hosea would say something like this, Take with you high praise. Take with you a psalm like 150. Handle on steroids. Get a tambourine or a cymbal. Hilarious, loud, exuberant, unembarrassed, charismatic, Pentecostal praise. Go ahead, yes. Take it with you. Take those words with you. Take with you psalms like 105, the history lesson. Just stand up. I had a friend when we lived in England that phoned me once. He was painfully discouraged and I really didn't know what to say. His situation was a mess. He wasn't imagining the pain. And the Lord say, said, give him some scripture to go read. And I gave him a passage of scripture. It was actually uh, Ephesians. It wasn't in the book of Psalms. I said, take this chapter, Ephesians 1 it was, and I said, take it and walk around your room 
and read it out loud. Just declare it to yourself. And I said, do that, I think I said 15 times, do something like that. He talked to me a few days later and he said, Dave, it was life-changing. It just, something was, came off me, this discouragement by declaring the word. It's a good thing to do and Psalms is a good place to start. So take something like 105, a history lesson. This is what you did for Israel. Lord, I believe this. Say it out loud. Declare it out loud. A history lesson. Take with you words. It's the fuel we put on the altar to worship God. Take with you promises and assurance of God's care. Lord, I don't get what's going on, but I believe you're a faithful shepherd. Because it says in Psalm 23, we can lie down in the grass and trust you to look after us that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I believe that, Lord. I don't have everything figured out, but I believe those promises in that psalm because it's in your word. Take with you Psalm 23. Finally, and this is something that's just out of the oven for me. You can't put icing on the cake until it's cooled off. So this one doesn't have the icing on it yet. Laments, Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? Note that twice King David and King Jesus say the phrase, my God. That's hugely important. They feel abandoned, but they somehow in the midst of it still know this God is their God. He's my God. Whatever was going on in David's life, and we know what was going on in Jesus' life, he has been crucified. And both instances... They call God, my God. But then they ask the painful and dreadfully honest question, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, keep that image in your mind, as painful as it is, Christ on the cross, and just think about something St. Paul says about that moment. In Ephesians 5, verse 2, Ephesians 5, verse 2, Paul is teaching the Ephesians about Christ's death. Okay, here's how he describes it. He died, Ephesians 5, 2, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He died as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, Lord, help me do this. <laughs> Everything about Christ's death was fragrant to God. Are there fragrances you like? I love the fragrance of fresh coffee. I love the fragrance of Indian food. Did you know I have a revelation there's going to be Indian restaurants in the New Jerusalem. I believe that because of the, the, oh, the curry. I just what I smell curry. Everything about Christ's death, everything, everything was fragrant to God. It was like the smoke coming up off the altar. And that, of course, would include Jesus saying, why have you done this? God, I, I don't have this figured out. The, the natural mind can't plug all these plugs in. It needs the Holy Spirit to help us see beyond logic and human reasoning. God accepted Jesus' anguished cry as an act of worship. Let me say that again. God deemed what Jesus said, why have you forsaken me, as an act of worship. He bundles it into that little volume that just says Tehillim on the front, praises, and it's got all kinds of questions in it. If this summer 
you were one of the ones that said, Lord, why did we lose Tony? One of the most encouraging people God ever sent to this place. You could have healed him and we didn't see it happen. Lord, what's going on? Do you know what? If you bring that question to God, by the time it gets to heaven, it turns into incense. It turns into worship. God receives us if we just bring it to him. Velma and I with our son having this illness, we over the summer many times, Lord, why? You're wise, your bewilderment can become an act of worship. Why did God give us the Psalms as fuel? Why do we need fuel? The same reason Israel did, because God raised up Israel and he's raised up the church to be a people who worship him. Let's be worshipers. Let's be worshipers. Let me pray for you and I'll turn it over to who's taking over now? Peter. Okay. Father, we thank you for this wonderful part of your written word, this book of the Psalms. We, we glorify you for it, Lord. We pray we could, in increasing measure, live in the good of this. It's such a resource that you've given us. I pray we would meditatively, like the, the psalmist in, in Psalm 1, just quietly spend time reflecting or sometimes be crazy and charismatic and jump around like Psalm 150. Where, Lord, if we need to, we can bring you our bewilderment and our anguish and all the rest of it. And all of it can become part of the praises, the Tehillim. We ask you all this now in Christ's name. Amen.